1961, golfing legend Arnold Palmer walked to the final hole of the Masters Tournament. With a one-stroke lead, he felt confident he would win. As he approached his ball on the green, a friend reached out his hand and said, congratulations. He took his hand and shook it, but soon realized he had lost his focus. His next two shots ended up in the sand trap and the other side of the green. It was a mistake he would never make again. We have to be careful not to deceive ourselves into thinking we have it all together and that we don't need anyone's help, especially God's. We're telling him we don't need him. We can do this on our own through our own righteousness. And what good is the Christian if they won't accept the righteousness of Christ? Welcome to Simple Truths for Life with Charles Tapp. Here, we hope you'll find answers to some of life's everyday struggles. You can learn more by visiting simpletruthsforlife.org. We like to think we can do it all on our own, but it's clear that without God, we will never be able to measure up. And this week, Charles Tapp continues with part 10 in his series, Christ First, A Journey Through the Book of Revelation, as he shares the lesson Jesus reveals to the seventh and final church mentioned in Revelation, Laodicea, and why this lesson is important to the church today, with his message, The Promise. As we have reached this juncture in our journey through the book of Revelation, there is one revelation that has stuck out in my mind that has truly resonated with me and had great impact with me, and I think that it deserves repeating. Because as I've said so many times, when it comes to learning, repeti repetition rather is crucial. It reminds me of the story of a pastor of a church who on three consecutive weeks preached the exact same sermon. Until one member came to him and said, Pastor, are you aware of the fact that you've been preaching this same message over the past three weeks? To which he responded, yes. And when asked why would he do such a thing, I'll never forget the response that was given. He says, I'm going to keep preaching it until you get it. Well, I'm going to preach and preach this and say it over and over again until we get it. And here is what I believe is the revelation of all revelations from the book of Revelation. And that is simply this, that the book of Revelation is not so much about the future and what the future holds. Rather, the book of Revelation is about the one who holds the future. And the reason why this is of such great importance is until we have this fact established firmly in our minds, it has the potential of causing many of us to become fearful or anxious about what we read. Many people have told me, Pastor, I stay away from the book of Revelation because it frightens me. The things that I read there cause me to become anxious. And I've got to admit, there are some frightening things, some frightening images in this book. But one of the things that helps us to deal with situations and circumstances that we experience that cause us to become fearful is when there is one who is greater, stronger, more experienced and equipped than we are, who has promised to be with us every step of the way. 
I remember as a child, there were some things in my life that caused me great fear and trepidation. Being in the dark, walking down a dark street was one of them until my father took his big, firm hand and grasped my little hand. And we continued to walk and my fear left me because I knew there was somebody with me who was bigger, stronger, greater, more equipped to handle what lay before me. And that's the message of Revelation. From the very beginning of the book, this is the message that is given to these seven churches of Asia Minor through the vision that John was given as he had been exiled on the island of Patmos. And the way Jesus demonstrates this is by presenting himself to these seven churches in different ways to help garner faith and confidence in who he is. He begins by giving John confidence in who he is as well. In John chapter, in Revelation chapter 1, verses 8 and 11, he says to John, listen, I am the Alpha and the Omega. He is sharing with John that he has the beginning, the middle, and the end all under his control. That there's no one before him and there is no one who could come after him. He says, I, John, have the keys of the power of death, hell, and the grave in my hand. And he does this. He presents himself to the seven churches in these tailor-made messages that each has received. He goes to the church of Ephesus, the church that has been accused of losing its first love. And he says to Ephesus, listen, I've got the seven stars representing the seven messengers, the seven pastors that would share the message. And I've got the seven candlesticks representing the churches in my hand. In other words, you may have lost your first love, but I have not lost you. And I am thankful today that no matter where I go, no matter what I do, God still has me in his sight. I love that poem. I can't remember his name by the great poet who says that God is the hound of heaven. Wherever we go, God goes. To the church at Smyrna, that persecuted church, Jesus says, listen, I'm the first, the last. I am him who was dead and now is alive. Through the church of Pergamum, who was known as the compromising church, he says, listen, I've got the two-edged sword in my hand. Rome may rule by the sword, but I've got the final word in this. To the church of Thyatira, the corrupt church, the church who was accused of having the, the seat of Satan right in its very midst, Jesus says, I am the one who has eyes like fire. I can penetrate right through you. I know everything that you're thinking, everything that you've done, everything that you're planning on doing. And I've got feet like brass. I'm firm. I'm stable. In other words, you can count on me. To the church of Sardis, the dead church. The church who was always living life through the rearview mirror, always living off of their past reputation and always falling short. He says, I've got the seven spirits. And if you remember anything about the book of Revelation, the number seven is not literal. It is symbolic in this particular case. In essence, he is talking about the fullness because seven represents the fullness, the completeness. So when he says, I've got the seven spirits, in essence, he's saying, I've got the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit that is available to each one of you. Amen. To the church of Philadelphia, the faithful church, he says, this is the one who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens doors and no man can shut. And when I shut a door, no man can open it. 
finally to the seventh and final church, the church known as the lukewarm church. In Revelation chapter 3, let's turn there in verse 14. This is what he has to say to this church. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says who? The amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. In other words, Jesus says to this church, this last church, not just the church of Asia Minor, for this church represents the church in the last days. In other words, this church represents us. To this church, he says, I am the amen. You know, when somebody's preaching in church or if someone says something that they think is true, something that they think they can trust in, they say, amen. In other words, Jesus said, I am the amen. You can trust in me. I am the faithful witness. I am everything I have ever claimed to be. You know, in our culture today, when someone, especially an athlete, lives up to his or her reputation or even exceeds it, we'll say that person is the truth. Oh, man, he's the truth. You know, I heard somebody, one of my students the other day said, LeBron James is the truth. And I said, no, he's not. Michael Jordan was the truth. Let's not get it twisted, amen, folk? He lived up and far exceeded his reputation and expectation. Jesus is saying, I far exceed anything you could ever think about me. I am the truth. No uncertain terms, this is Jesus' way of saying everything that's been said about me is true. There's nothing that can be debated. In other words, you can take me at my word. I am, I have always been, and always will be everything you need me to be. Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Let's take a look at this quickly. Revelation 3, 15 and verse 16. Look at what the word of God says. I know your works, talking to the believers in the church of Laodicea, talking to us today, that you are neither cold nor hot. He says, I wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you. How of my mouth. Very strong language here. Two points I want us to consider as we examine these two verses. The first is this. Did you notice that there is no word of commendation to the believers at Laodicea? Remember in all the other letters to the seven churches, Jesus did not begin with a rebuke, but he always said something good. He always gave them some well-deserved praise. In this instance, he says, no, you are neither cold nor hot. You are lukewarm, and you make me sick to my stomach. Not only is this the last of the seven churches, many believe that this church, our church, in our day, is the worst of the seven. Second point I want us to consider today, and that is this that there is a very common interpretation of this passage that, that many of us have heard, learned, studied over the years that I think is really not accurate. For many believe that what Jesus is saying here that you are lukewarm, meaning that you have a half-hearted walk with God. 
In other words, you're not hot, meaning you don't have a zeal for God, and you're not cold, meaning that you're lifeless. In essence, the idea that many have here is that Jesus is saying that it's better off to have no profession of God than to, be have, to have one that is indifferent. And I disagree with that. Why would God want anyone not to have a profession of who he is? Why would a God who came and died want someone to rather be not in him than of him? That makes no sense. For this is the same God who says, I'm not willing that any should perish, but all should come to eternal life. For to make no profession of God would mean that you will be lost. Even if I had a half-hearted profession of God, at least that could be revived. God is not willing that any should perish. The second thing is this. This is why I don't believe this is an accurate interpretation. It's because as many of us do from time to time, we have taken this text, this passage, this part of Revelation chapter 3, completely out of context. And as you well know, a text without a context is a pretext. I will say it again. A text, that's what we have here today, without its context, its pure understanding, is a pretext. You are giving it your own meaning instead of taking the meaning that is presented. Which means first, we need to look at the background of this church and the city that also had the same name. The city of Laodicea, unlike Sardis, kept up to their reputation. For Laodicea was known as one of the greatest commercial and financial centers of the thin known world. In other words, Laodicea was a very rich and wealthy church. Not only were they rich and wealthy, they were proud of the fact that they were rich and wealthy. You know anybody like that? To the point where in A.D. 60, there was a great earthquake that destroyed the city of Laodicea. And instead of accepting the help that the Roman government wanted to give, they refused it and said, no, we can do this all by ourselves. And they did it. I don't know about you. You know, my car was destroyed last week, a couple weeks ago. If somebody offered me help, I would take it. Amen. I'm not asking for a car. Don't, 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 don't. <laughs> but they were too proud to accept help. And the reason why they refused to accept it, they knew they were wealthy enough to do it. Here's the key. All by themselves. You're listening to Simple Truths for Life with Charles Tapp and his message, The Promise. And if you're enjoying this message or you'd like to find others like it, you can find out more by visiting simpletruthsforlife.org. We'll conclude with the rest of his message right after this. Man, when I think about WGTS, I think about family. And uh, WGTS lifts me up. The whole crew has truly been a blessing in my life. And um, I'm forever grateful for WGTS and what they do for myself and for the community. We are- support makes a difference. I always uh, encourage people, like, you want to listen to something, be encouraged when you're going through a tough time, starting at 91.9, um, they are definitely up with the spirits. And uh, especially in the trying time we're in right now in society. Working together to impact the nation's capital. We are and I am forever grateful for, for the WGPS family because that's exactly what it is, family. And we get to be a part of that as listeners, which is 
is amazing. Listener funded. WGTS 91.9. Always encouraging. At 88.3 on the Eastern Shore. This is Simple Truths for Life. And this week, Charles Tepp shares the lesson Jesus reveals to the Church of Laodicea and why this lesson is important to the church today. As he continues with the rest of his message, The Promise. But as wealthy as this city was, they were deprived of one of the most basic things that any group, any population would need to survive, and that is good, clean, running water. As a matter of fact, they got their water through the Roman aqueducts from the north, from the city of Hierapolis, which was famous for its, its, its hot baths. But they also got their cold water from the city of Colossae, about 11 miles south of that. But by the time the water came into the city of Laodicea, it was, don't miss this, it was neither cold nor was it hot, but it was lukewarm. Jesus wasn't saying then that you're not hot, meaning you don't have zeal, or that you're cold, or you're lifeless. In essence, Jesus saying you are good for nothing. Hot water is not better than cold water. It's just different. Cold water is not better than hot water. It is different. After a long day at work, whether outside raking the 50 million leaves I have in my yard, only to find out the next day I got 54 million leaves. I want a cool glass of what? Water. Don't give me a cup of tea. I want something cold and cool, something that could quench my thirst. But when I get inside and I'm dusty and I'm dirty, I don't want to take a cold shower. I want to take a hot shower. I don't know about you, I like my showers very hot where it steams the windows, steams the wall. You have to open the window of the bathroom just so you can see how to get out the shower. So hot water is not better than cold water. Cold water is not better than hot. They're just different, but they're both useful. And here's the point that Jesus is making in the letter to the church at Laodicea. He says, you're lukewarm. You're not hot. You can't be useful there. You're not cold. You can't be useful in that arena. You're good for nothing. So I vomit you out of my mouth. When I was a child, notice I'm prefacing this by saying when I was a child. But we had family who stayed over, and because we didn't have enough room, my parents told me that they're going to have to sleep in your room. I didn't take too kindly to that. But when my mother spoke, that was law. So that evening when the folk were about to go off to bed, I asked them, would you like to have a nice cold glass of water before you go off to sleep? To which they said, sure. So I took the glass of water and I put some cold water in it. Then I put some hot water in it. And I mixed it to just the right temperature where it was no longer cold and it was no longer hot. And I gave them the glass of water and I said, here, have a good night. And they drank that water in the next few minutes. They were running to the bathroom, vomiting everywhere. When I was a child, folk, 
Jesus wasn't saying, I detest you. Please don't miss this. He was saying, I vomit you out of my mouth because that's what lukewarmness produces. I'm just doing what comes natural because you're neither cold nor hot. You're no longer useful. And when something comes within your system that is not useful, you have to let go of it. Or it will make you sick. In other words, Jesus is saying, you make me sick to my stomach. But why did Jesus call this church? Better yet, why is Jesus calling us today lukewarm? Look at verse 17 of Revelation chapter 3. Because you say, because you say, I am what? Rich, have become wealthy, and have need of what? Nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and what? Naked. Listen, one of the most dangerous places for a child of God to be in is when they find themselves having been deceived, not by an enemy, but they have become the victim of deception by their own deception. I'm sure all of us, when we were kids, heard the story of the emperor with new clothes and how he commissioned, the emperor commissioned these men to make him new clothes so that he can go out and parade himself within the city. And finally, no one could come up with something that the king liked. And these last guys who came in got this idea saying, King, we've got this invisible suit. Nobody can see it until you go out into the crowd. And he put on this imaginary suit and paraded himself throughout the city. And everybody's looking at the naked king. But nobody will tell him the reality until one little boy nudged his parents and said, why is the king naked? Here it is. Why did Jesus say you're lukewarm? Because you're naked and you don't know it. And in the Bible, especially in the book of Revelation, garments, clothing represents righteousness. By us being naked, Jesus is saying, we're telling him we don't need him. We can do this on our own through our own righteousness. And what good is a Christian if they won't accept the righteousness of Christ? And here's the message to the church of Laodicea then and now. You're making me sick to my stomach because you're accepting your own righteousness. You're too proud to understand that you're really poor, blind, and you're naked. And you refuse my righteousness. You rather hold on to your own righteousness, which is filthy rags, the Bible tells us. This age we live in today, the church has many resources, many mechanisms. We've got programs, we've got material things, we've got financial resources, we have all these things. And because we have these things, we think that that equates to spirituality, and it doesn't. This is probably the richest age of the church, but this is also the poorest age of the Christian church. Because we're a church that's living within its own righteousness. And that's why these preachers who stand up to preach, we need to be careful what we preach. We need to stop preaching all this prosperity. We need to start, stop preaching all this breakthrough. We need to stop, stop preaching, well, you know, everything's going to be hunky-dory. It's not. It's only going to get worse. 
That's why Jesus made it clear at the beginning of this book, you can count on me because you're going to need me. You think it's bad now? This is nothing. As I said earlier, each message to each of these seven churches can represent every church. So there's going to come a time in this church where we will be persecuted from within as well as from without. There's going to come a time in this church where we will compromise, thus saith the Lord. We don't realize that we're poor. This word poor. I love it how it reads in the Greek. It says you're so poor that you're like a beggar. It's like going out into the streets of some of our cities and you see these people standing out there with cans begging for money, but in their minds they think that they're wealthy. That's us. We look down on them because they're poor materially. That's a reflection of our spiritual poverty. Jesus says, there's nothing left for me to do but to vomit you out of my mouth. But as bad off as this church was and as bad off as we are, thank God the situation is not hopeless. Look at verses 18 and 19 of Revelation chapter 3. I counsel you, I advise you, I admonish you to buy from me gold that has been refined in the fire. In other words, it's been tested. It is true. It is the real deal. That you may be rich and white garments, that you may be what? Clothed because right now you are naked. That the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Verse 19. For as many as I love, I rebuke, I chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. When I was reading this this morning, it, it, it made me think of the tough love that we as parents have to give our children at times. That's the tone that I'm hearing in Jesus' words here. You know what tough love is all about, don't you? Tough love is when you do what's best for somebody you love, hoping that they will eventually do what's right. And that tough love is called tough because it's not just tough on the one who receives that tough love, it's also tough on the one who administers that tough love. So sometimes parents, tough love is, uh, you can no longer have a cell phone. You can no longer have the keys to the car. Tough love. Oh, you're flunking out in your classes? You need to be in by five o'clock every day. Tough love. My parents gave us tough love when we were kids. Tough love. When I, when I went off to college, my father said, tough love. You're on your own now, son. What? He said, you're a man now. I'm going, no, I'm not. He says, you are no longer and he was a good father, great man. He said, you will no longer receive any more financial help from me. I said, wow. So, because of that tough love, I got jobs. <laughs> Where everybody else was out playing, I worked. <laughs> I remember being in college, having shoes that had holes in it. So I took cardboard and cut the cardboard in half and stuck a piece in each shoe. And that worked fine until it rained. But I couldn't call home and ask for money for shoes. So I worked. And because of my father's tough love, 
I know how to take care of business. But first, Jesus has to give us some tough love. This is the message to the church today. You think you're rich. You think you increase with goods. But the stark reality is you are spiritually impoverished. Because you think you can do this thing in your own strength, in your own righteousness, in your own works. You know, we say we... We say we believe we're saved by grace, but then we come up with all these things you got to do to be saved. That's not righteousness. Righteousness is what Christ gives us. And he says, I'm knocking at your door. Do you want it? I'll give it to you. I'll invite you in. And we can fellowship together. And I'll give you a robe to cover up your dirty, filthy righteousness. You can now wear my righteousness. So when people look at you, and my father looks at you, he doesn't see your tattered righteousness. He sees my blood-stained righteousness. That's the promise. You've been listening to Simple Truths for Life with Charles Tapp and his message, The Promise. And if you want to listen again or share it with someone, You can find these messages on platforms like Apple Podcasts and now also on Spotify or visit us online at simpletruthsforlife.org. Now here's what we're working on for next week. Jesus coming to the doors, he's basically saying, I need you to recapture. I need the love that you first had for me when you first believed. I need that to be restored. Next week, we hope you can listen in again as Charles Tapp shares the 11th part in this series, Christ First, A Journey Through the Book of Revelation, with his message, Imagine Heaven.